Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Resistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire. Now today's episode is a tricky one to explain in an introductory line, but it has a good backstory that will give you a flavour of what is a gripping story. Earlier this summer, I stumbled on an abandoned mine shaft, and strange as it will sound, it was in the darkness of a narrow, dark tunnel that I came across this story, or rather, this story popped into my head. It began with a question... You see, after about 20 minutes in that mineshaft, I had to leave the tunnel because it started to have that strange, deeply discomforting feeling that the walls were closing in around me. But I had spent enough time in there to pique my curiosity and I had a lot of questions. How could someone spend their entire lives mining in tunnels like that? What was it for? Who did the work? And what was it like? Now, the answers I got to these questions was a lot more than I bargained for. It's the story of a quaint Irish village that was transformed in the 1830s when copper mines were sunk into a pristine, beautiful landscape. People came from far and wide, and what was once a rural paradise of sorts became a nightmarish landscape. The village was soon a bustling settlement with a shanty town at its edge. Meanwhile, the conditions were shocking in the mines as even the local children were forced to work in dangerous mining operations. Then it also has this fascinating cataclysmic conclusion, which saw 95% of the population leave in just one decade. Now, this episode is recorded both in the depths of the mine and in some of Ireland's most stunning landscapes. It's a riveting history that explores what life was like in a mining town where copper was king and profit was the bottom line. While we will begin on a beautiful beach on the Waterford coast, don't forget my new book, A Lethal Legacy, A History of Ireland in 18 Murders, is coming out in just four weeks. I can hardly believe it myself. It seemed like it would never arrive when I was writing it. But now it's imminent. I'm expecting my first hard copy in the coming week. Now you can pre-order your copy today and when you get yours at eason's.com, you get a 10% discount when you use the coupon code FD10. That's FD10. But that discount is only available while the book is on pre-order. 
Come September the 14th, when it's available in the shops, it'll be full price. So don't miss out on that bargain. There's links in the show notes below to Easton's where you can pre-order, and that coupon code is FD10. Sound on today's episode is by Case Dunley. There's few more evocative sounds than the lapping of the tide and waves crashing against the shore. It instantly conjures up a sense of place, relaxing, pristine beaches, holidays, the best things in life. And it captures my surroundings pretty well today, certainly better than any flowery language could anyway. I'm standing on the shoreline at low tide near a place called Bunmahan in County Waterford and it's as idyllic as it sounds. Bunmahan is a picturesque little seaside village home to around 150 people. Each summer its population does swell but it never gets too crowded. There's just one cafe, one pub, no shop and a museum. But that's what makes Bunmahan. It's a place where you can come to get away from it all. But nice as it is, I haven't come here to talk about that. I want to talk about a different Bunmahan. You see, 170 years ago, in the 19th century, this was a very, very different place. It was far from idyllic and looked very different too. There was a booming town here that would dwarf the village you find here today. But for many people who called it home, it was a living hell. While the gentle sounds of waves might help convey Bunmahan as it is today, there's something, or perhaps somewhere, I want to bring you now that will help convey its history. I'm not actually on Bunmahan Beach itself, but a cove up the coast, surrounded by steep cliffs on all sides, and cut into the base of what must be a 30 metre cliff, I'm guessing, is a narrow crevice. Now, initially, this crevice doesn't look like much, but I'm gonna make my way in further. And as you make your way down, you'll probably hear the sounds of it changing at home, but it's clear that this is a man-made tunnel. And this, in many ways, preserves the history of Bunmahan best. Now from the beach, the tunnel looks to be about, I'd say 10 feet deep. But as the darkness closes in around me, I'm approaching the end of the tunnel when suddenly to my left, the chamber opens up into a second tunnel that's illuminated by light. And that's because there's a shaft that runs about 30 meters up through the rock, up to the top of the cliff face above. Now, looking up towards the very top, I can see lats of wood have been put across the shaft. The tunnel itself continues on past this, and I'm gonna make my way down a little bit to tell you more about why I've brought you down here and what I wanna talk about. So I'm going to stop. I'm not that far in, but it's really starting to close in around me. And I'm not, I I can get a bit claustrophobic, so I don't want to go too far down. But I'm about, what I'm guessing is 20 metres now, back from the beach. You can't really hear the, the sea back in here anymore. But I want to, as I say, explain a little bit of why I've started the show down this tunnel. So... Maybe back at the start, I think I talked about how Bunman's history stands in sharp contrast to the beautiful seaside village it is today. And I think this dark, pretty cramped and ever-narrowing tunnel captures this. It's a case in point, really. You see, in the 1830s, kilometres of tunnels, just like this one, were dug beneath the pristine landscape that's above me now. The deepest one of these tunnels penetrated a kilometre below the surface. 
Now, these were mines, or they are, I suppose, abandoned mines today, and they were part of a mid-19th century copper rush that Bunmahan experienced, a bit like, I suppose, the gold rushes that maybe are more famous in North America. People flocked here from far and wide to mine the extensive copper deposits that were found beneath the soil. The population of the village exploded, nearly trebling between 1821 and 1841. But in this podcast, I don't really want to talk about the mine per se and that aspect of things, but more about what life was like for people who lived and worked down these tunnels. Now, the idyllic landscape above ground was transformed, as I mentioned earlier, into a living nightmare. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, noisy steam engines operated pumps to try and get the water out of these mines so men could then go down and mine in the depths. Above the surface, stone crushers to break the rock that the miners would bring up operated as well 24 hours a day when needed. Now, this endless quest for copper would see gangs of men toiled really far beneath the surface in awful conditions and also all too often deadly conditions. Now I'm going to say I've been down in this tunnel for a minute or two now, not very long, and I'm, as I say, already starting to feel a bit claustrophobic. I just can't imagine what it was like to work down these when all you had was a candlelight and then the, the constant din of picks and shovels at work. Now, while these mines were an appalling place to work, I'm going to be talking more as well in this podcast about what life was like at the surface, because the processing plants where the stone taken out of these mines was broken up was arguably even worse. Children under 10 years of age worked washing and sorting those stones around dangerous machinery, and then the stone was eventually shipped to England for further processing. Now, Even no matter how bad this was, people still came here in droves. As I said, the population of what was once a sleepy village exploded, trebling over the course of just two decades. Indeed, a shanty town would even spring up in this beautiful, idyllic landscape. Okay, I'm really finding this space down here unpleasant, to say the least. So I think I've made my point that this maybe captures some of the history I want to talk about today. Later on, we will hear the stories of child labour and visit what was the shanty town. But first, I'm going to get out of here, but I want to bring you to one of the few places where you can find evidence of this mining history above the ground. So I'm back in the car now and I'm driving east away from Bunmahan. And up here, there's no sense of that mining history. It's a pretty normal rural Irish landscape. There's beautiful coastal views to my right. But in the distance, on the horizon, there's a very unusual feature in the landscape. So, from a distance, it almost looks like a medieval Irish monastery. There's a tall feature that you might think looks like a round tower, and then the kind of ruins beside it. Now, I'm just pulling in beside it here, but this is actually where, I suppose, the past and present at Bunmahan meet above the surface. This was actually where the main mine came to the surface and I'm going to get out here and what I want to talk to you about is just what life was like up here because today as I say it's just a normal Irish landscape these ruins in front of me are quite well tended but in the 1840s 1850s and 1860s it looked very very different we're also going to talk about conditions in the mines and Aidan Crow is going to read narrations from the 1840s when miners who worked here testified before a government commission but I'm going to get out of the car now and I'll explore 
these ruins. And I'll tell you a little bit about the mine because it's a pretty incredible structure. It actually ran 850 meters into the ground. You can hear my car just turning off there. But as I, I mentioned, as I was driving up here, what survives today is this tall cylindrical feature and then there's the ruins of two buildings on either side. Now, today it looks really nice. It's well tended to this paths laid out. But this looked so, so different 170 years ago because what this was is, this is where the mine came to the surface. And when you get close to it, that cylindrical feature that I likened to a round tower, that's actually a chimney. And what was in the two buildings on either side of it were, were steam engines. And they were used to power pumps, to pump the water out of the mine. Because, as I say, this mine in front of me, or the shaft in front of me, runs 850 metres into the ground. That's below the level of the sea level at the bottom of the cliffs. Now, the shaft itself is surrounded by two fences today for very good reason. You don't want to try and explore that. As I say, it goes down 850 metres. The mine itself, while that shaft is vertical, at various intervals, then there'll be horizontal shafts that would run off it where the miners would have toiled on a daily basis. But this would have been a really dirty, noisy place back in the 1850s. I'm sure you can hear at home. It's just like a, a beautiful landscape today. But with those big steam-powered engines operating the pumps and then also winches to pull the, not only the men up and down out of the mine but also the copper ore that they would have mined in the depths and brought that to the surface. There would have been filthy, dirty, all the spoil of the mine would have been surrounding this area. Now before the copper ore was shipped to England for further processing, it was actually washed and kind of sorted and broken up here but not at this site. That was done closer to the village of Bonmahan in a processing plant that is referred locally to as the dressing floor. Next, I'm going to go down there, but what you're going to hear first is Aidan Crow reading a narration from that government commission that I mentioned in the 1840s. And from that, you get a sense of the dangers of day-to-day -day life. I think in this, you're going to hear about three deaths in the space of like 12 to 24 months, including the death of a child. And that gives you a sense just how dangerous working conditions were here. But I'm going to head over to the car while you listen to that. And I'm going to start making my way down to the processing plant or the dressing floor where those children worked. About 12 months since a man was killed at the North Mine. About two years since a little girl was killed at the stamping machines. It is also about 12 months since one of the miners was completely covered by the falling in of some earth. He remained in that state for three days and nights and was still alive when he got out. He did not suffer any very material injury. He is able to work a little now. I mean, he had no limbs broken. But he suffers sometimes now in one of his legs from it having been so long in the cold water. None of us ever expected him to get out alive. It's a pretty harrowing account, isn't it? And I think it starts to get across just how difficult and dangerous life was for the miners. And as I was heading down to the next stop, which is going to be the dressing floor where a lot of local children processed the rock brought up from the mine, I spotted the local Catholic church in the distance and I decided I'd come over here because this has its own story that's also related to the difficulties of life in the mines and how hard life was for the miners. So I'm just going to get out of the car and explain a little bit about this church here. So 
So the parish church, the local Catholic parish church here in Bunmahan, is pretty unusual in that it's a much smaller parish church than you'd expect to find from 19th century Irish Catholic churches. As I say, it's pretty small and compact, but this wasn't actually built as a Catholic church. You see, by the 1840s, alcoholism had become a chronic problem in this community. And I think having just listened to that account that you heard from the government commission and everything I've said so far, I think that's pretty understandable that the miners were turning to alcoholism. But lots of visitors to the area commented on this and the mine company even began to comment on it that it was impacting work. Now, it was a local Catholic curate that would take action on this, and he started up an abstinence campaign where miners would commit or pledge to not drinking alcohol anymore. And they collected local money, and they actually built this building here, the local Catholic church, but it wasn't a church at the time. What it was was an abstinence hall, and what would happen here is in the evenings, instead of going to a pub to drink alcohol, the miners would come here, play cards, drink tea, things like that. Now, later on, it transformed into a Catholic church, but I suppose it is the building itself and its original function as an abstinence hall to try and help miners get away from alcohol is a relic of the harsh conditions in which they worked under and, I suppose, unsurprisingly led to chronic alcoholism in the area. But I want to continue on with the original plan now and go down to the dressing floor where the children of this community were forced to work in horrific conditions and dangerous conditions, children under the age of 10. And, you know, it's at times a sad story and, well, at times it is just a sad story. But down there, we're going to hear another testimony from that government commission, this one from an 11-year-old child. But I'm going to get back in the car and drive down there and I'll pick up the story over there. Now, I've come down close to what is the modern village of Bunmahan. I'm not going to go over there just yet, but I can see it in the distance. But I've stopped where the dressing floor was. And this is where the copper ore was processed, or an initial phase of processing went on before it was sent to England. The dressing floor itself comprised of lots of large sheds. It was a very expansive infrastructure. It's nearly all gone. But I have stopped at one of the few surviving buildings from that time. And it's actually the only three-storey house here in Bunmahan, or one of the few, certainly in the 19th century, was the only three-storied house here in Bunmahan. And this house, in many ways, I suppose, symbolises at least the harsh working conditions not only the local women, but also the local children had to work in on the dressing floor. I'm going to explain or describe the house to you. It's actually quite hard to access, maybe it symbolises the... Uh, lost or covered history of Bunmahan mining. As I go over here, my choice of shorts to walk through brambles wasn't the smartest. But anyway, the house itself, as I've said, is a three-storey building. The historian Des Cowman actually described this house as, I think, being very plain. And certainly there's no architectural niceties to it. It's very functional. There's no nice features, I suppose, to the building. Its location, though, is very unusual. So most houses here in Bunmahan naturally overlook what is a lovely beach further up. And I'm going to go down there later in the episode and I'll talk about that. But most houses strive to overlook that and the beautiful vistas of the sea. This house is different. It is almost with its back to the sea, kind of built into the side of a hill. So it faces away from the sea. So there's not really any views of the ocean from here. 
Today it overlooks what is just a, a, a grassy field. There's a few houses in the distance and a few cows grazing in the field, but there's not much to it. But in the 1840s, 1850s, when Bunmahan mining was at its height, this house was positioned here for very specific reasons. This was the mine manager, an individual usually referred to as the captain. This was his house. And by positioning the house here, it overlooks where all the processing of the ore went on. And I suppose standing here today in front of this ruin, overlooking where the dressing floor was, it reminds me of the Panopticon, that idea from the 19th century institutions where the architecture is designed to make the inmates feel constantly monitored. And it must have been the same for the people working on the dressing floor beneath this. They must have felt constantly monitored from the windows of this house. To explain a little bit about what went on down there, the ore was brought up here and crushed with these huge hammers that sometimes went 24 hours a day. They were powered by steam engines. Now I think the word hammer probably doesn't really get across what, they, what these were. They were enormous things to crush the stone. The stone after that had to be washed. It had to be then further processed before it was shipped to England for final processing. Now, this happened quite a distance away from the mine. It's a couple of kilometres. The reason for that is that the original mine was close to Keir. That got flooded and they opened the second mine where I recorded earlier on. That's where the, the, that shaft that runs 850 metres into the ground is located. But that's why the two are quite separate, are quite far apart. Now, I suppose what stands out in terms of its history today and looking back is the fact that a large number of children were employed in this some as young as eight, as you're about to hear. Now, we've got a good understanding, though, of the workforce and what they had to endure in the dressing floor from that government commission I mentioned earlier on that took place in the 1840s. This commission now is designed to investigate child labour in mines in the 19th century. And it's sent around a series of sub-commissioners to various mines, and one of them actually came here to Bunmahan, or it's sometimes referred to as Knockmahan, that's kind of the wider area where the dressing floor and the mine is located. But a man called Frederick Roper actually visited this for that commission, and he interviewed the mine manager at the time and lots of the children who worked in the mine. And the mine manager's testimony is very interesting, and you're about to hear Aidan Crow read a little bit from that testimony. But he doesn't see anything wrong with the fact that he's employing children. In fact, he's complaining that the parents won't send the children to work. You know what, I'm going to actually play it for it now. This is Frederick Roper describing a conversation he had with the mine manager here in Bunmahan in the 1840s. They have so much trouble with the children and young persons already employed. He says that there is a great difficulty to get them to come to work at all. They are most irregular in their attendance, very averse to work, and will not come in when the weather is unfavourable, even though they work under wooden sheds. The parents, he tells me, do not either insist on their children going to work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So there's a lot to unpack in that, obviously. He's complaining about the fact that he can't get children to work in a mining operation. Now, I think the reasons why he was having these difficulties are several fold. First of all, the parents probably didn't want their children working in this mining operation. They knew how dangerous it was. But also, it probably highlights some of the difficulties that was often experienced in the early phase of the Industrial Revolution, when large numbers of people moved from agriculture into factories, mines, things like that. Now, in those factories and mines, the employers wanted people to work long, regular hours every day and then like up to six and a half days a week. But people coming from agricultural backgrounds weren't used to working like that. They often lived in subsistence modes of living. So that would mean that they'd work until they had enough to provide for their families and then they would, wouldn't constantly work and produce food or anything they didn't need. So it's very possible that people at Bunmahan would come to the mine, work for a number of days, earn enough money that would provide for their families for a few weeks, then disappear off for a few weeks and then come back to work. And it's possible that the mine manager just didn't understand this. He was coming from a more industrialised society in England. And that might explain why he, co- he describes that they turn up for work irregularly. Now, in that government commission that gives us a good sense of life here in Bunmahan in the 1840s, one of the saddest testimonies I came across was from an 11-year-old child, Morris Cuddy. I'm just going to get Aidan to read out some of Morris Cuddy's testimony. I am 11 years of age. I live with my brother and sister in Bunmahan close by here. I have been working three years at these works. I get four pence a day. I like my work very well. It's not very hard work. Some of us get a slap of the head sometimes or, or a cut with a stick when not attentive to our work. I'm not tired when I leave work. I've never been to school. I go to chapel on Sundays. I cannot read or write. That's obviously very sad. One thing that struck me is that Morris Cuddy and several of the other children and teenagers who testified before that commission all use a very similar phrase when they talk about the fact that they like their work. And they often use this phraseology that's like, I like my work very well or something similar to that. And it makes me wonder whether they've been coached and warned that they were to say this before the government commission. I don't know if they had to testify in public, which would obviously mean they were being observed. But I think it's highly likely that they had all been coached to say this. And obviously Morris then in his testimony let slip the fact that he's been beaten and has to work long hours, doesn't go to school, is illiterate. But then again, in the 19th century, many of those things wouldn't have been in any way abnormal. Now, from here, overlooking the dressing floor, what I want to do is move further down towards the modern village of Bunmahan. And there I want to talk about some of the living conditions 
of the people who worked here in the mine because the population of Bunmahan, as I mentioned earlier, I think, trebled in the space of a couple of decades and was almost the place was unrecognisable by the 1850s, 1860s. The conditions in which many of the people lived were shocking. So I'm going to go down to where there used to actually be a shanty town beside the modern village of Bunmahan and I'm going to talk about living conditions down there. I finally arrived at Bunmahan Beach. It's very close to the village. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the village in a minute. I just might describe my surroundings here. I'm sitting in the car because it's a bit of a windy day. I'm going to get out in a minute. But I just want to describe my surroundings first because that helps understand the living conditions in which people had to live in here in the 1870s. So today, as I mentioned at the start, Bunmahan is this idyllic place. There's a beach, lovely long beach. Then there's a ridge of sand dunes that runs along the top of the beach and there's a lovely boardwalk on top of that. Then there's kind of rising cliffs on either side of the beach that frame it in this uh, gorgeous way. Then right behind this kind of low valley runs all the way back and you can see the Cumra Mountains in the distance. And up in those mountains is somewhere the Mahan River rises and it slowly meanders its way all the way down to Bun Mahan and flows into the sea at the far end of the beach. The Mahan River is what gives Bun Mahan its name. Now at the western end, or the other end away from where the river flows into the sea, at the other end of the beach is the village of Bun Mahan. I mentioned that at the start of the show, it's tiny. It's basically a clutch of houses with a permanent population of somewhere around 150 people. There's a pub and a cafe, but that's about it. However, when you walk around Bunmahan today, you can see all the signs that the residents now live in a settlement that was once much larger. There's kind of an unusual feel to it. Like when you walk around, there's lots of empty buildings, but that in itself is not unique. Dereliction is a problem in lots of small towns in Ireland. But in Bunmahan, they're kind of strung out and there's gaps between buildings, indicating there was probably once a lot more structures in the village. Now, historical sources definitely confirmed this. When I was researching this show, I went back to a commercial guide from 1870 just to see what Bunmahan was like at the time. And that recorded a baker, an ironmonger, a pawnbroker, two grocers, two butchers, two drapers, two shopkeepers of no specific description, a doctor, and no less than 13 pubs. And when you combine this with other accounts from the time when the mine was in operation, you begin to wonder where did all these people live. For example, in 1836, there was a thousand employees in the mine. And then eight years later, in 1844, that workforce had increased to 1,200. Now, census data indicates a lot of them were living here in Bunmahan. By 1841, the population, as I say, had nearly trebled when there was 1,771 people living here. But now there's only 150 people And there are a few signs of where that huge population lived because they certainly couldn't fit in Bunmahan today. Like on the main road just behind me where I'm parked, there's a kind of a curious wall that has the impression in it of where doors and windows once stood of about half a dozen cottages. That's all actually that remains of a series of mining cottages that were built here in the 1830s. But there's no way that they accommodated the 1,700 people or the over 1,000 who worked in the mine. Now, the more you read about Bunmahan, though, then you start to get the impression of this very difficult living conditions. Because, you see, in the 1830s, all these miners started to flock 
to this part of the country. Like they were coming as far away as Cornwall in England, but there was nowhere for them to live because local farmers wouldn't give up land for houses. And a shanty town was built right close to where I'm parked right now. Now, to understand this, I need to explain a little bit more about the sand dunes here at the top of the beach. I mentioned that, that there's this long linear sand dune now that runs along the very top of the beach. And that's, I suppose, fake because it's actually built on this series of rocks that have been intentionally placed there. I guess they hold the sand dunes in place. In the 19th century, though, it was very different. They were all kind of higgledy-piggledy. And judging on contemporary accounts, they actually would have moved a lot, depending on storms, or the sand would have moved a lot anyway. But it was in those original sand dunes that were a lot more higgledy-piggledy that a shanty town of sorts was built here at Bunman. And you know what, I'm going to get out of the car now and just walk over to some of those dunes and take a look at where these people, hundreds of people, were living. So I had to walk about 100 metres across the car park there, so I cut that out. But I'm in the sand dunes now, and this is actually where a shanty town was built in the 19th century to accommodate these large numbers of miners that flocked into the town. And like walking around here today, it's, as I've said throughout the show, it's really idyllic. Like people come here because it's so idyllic. It's really hard to imagine a shanty town here. Like I was out here at the weekend and there's people camped in here having a lovely time. But the conditions that the people lived in here back in the 1840s were appalling. There were several families crowded into what were described as hovels. There was no running water, no sewage. Emily Dowdney, who was the daughter of a local Protestant rector, in her memoirs, remembered that streets here would be completely swamped in sand after storms. And that happened on at least two occasions. And that just adds to the sense of misery that these people must have lived in. Like, you have to think, lots of these people are coming back from long days working in a mine and they come back to this shanty town. Now, the more I explore, though, Bunmahan, like, difficult as those conditions are, it was a booming, bustling place. And looking around here today, its attraction is that it's quiet, it's peaceful. And you have to ask, what happened? Where did the mine go? Where did all the people go? Now, we do know that Bunmahan suffered appallingly during the Great Hunger. That'll come as no surprise. I don't think there's any community in Ireland that didn't suffer. But I came across this letter, for example, written to the Waterford Chronicle, a local newspaper, that maybe captures some of the difficulties they faced because in the late 1840s, while the potato had failed, the price of copper actually went down, which meant the mines actually laid off people temporarily in the late 1840s. And this letter now, read by Aidan, captures some of the difficulties people here were facing. To the editor of the Waterford Chronicle. Knockmahan, November 5th. Sir, may I expect a corner in your honest newspaper to state a few conditions relative to the destitute poor. In consequence of a total failure of the potato crop in this locality, the vast population of this district, including McMahon, and the mining population must depend entirely for support on public work. Now, that, though, isn't the reason the town went into the decline that it did, because the mine would flourish for another couple of decades after the 1840s. It was actually the 1870s that would prove the decisive point fluctuations again in the price of copper and the fact that the copper here at Bunmahan was becoming harder to access. 
pushed the price of mining here up. Eventually, in 1877, the pumps that were so integral to the mining operation were removed by the mining company. And that was a signal that they were basically shutting down the operation. The following year, that's 1878, they actually demolished those mining cottages behind me, the ones that are preserved in that stone wall where the doors and the windows still survive. They were demolished in 1878. And then the following year of 1879, the leases on the land that the mining company would have had that were obviously integral to the entire operation, they were allowed to expire. And after that, it was clear that the mines were not going to reopen. Now, you can only imagine the devastation that was wrought on this community after that. Pretty much everyone here, from local shops to everyone working here, was somehow tied into the mining industry. Now, Aidan Crow is going to read another account, this one from around that time, that describes what was happening in Bunmahan as the mines were closed down. And it really gives you a sense of the desperation facing many. It was as if an angel of death had swept over Bunmahan. It is now almost deserted, and the misery and wretchedness of the people that survived is painful beyond description. They are in a state of destitution to amount almost to starvation. Now it's clear from that account that emigration was well underway because it talks about the population falling. In 1891, there was only 120 people living here. Don't forget, it had been 1,771 just five decades earlier. And that's a drop of nearly 95%, which far outweighs most or nearly every other Irish community in the 19th century when emigration was rife everywhere. It's a really staggering figure. Imagine that, living in a community where 19 out of 20 people leave. It must have been a literal ghost town. Like, I'm walking around these dunes here now and they're like quiet. You can probably hear the wind in the background. But, like, these used to be a thriving community. It was an awful place to live, but it was still a thriving community. Now, by 1895, a local newspaper visited Bunmahan. Now, this is about 15 years after the mines closed. And they found the place completely, as I say, like a ghost town. Aidan Crow is again going to read this piece from a local newspaper in 1895. 30 or 40 years ago, Bunmahan was a stirring, prosperous little place, with a thriving population of over 2,000 persons. Bunmahan contained flourishing schools and supported a printing press established and conducted by an energetic Protestant clergy. Now all this has changed. The village dwindled gradually to its present dimensions, house after house falling into decay, and a whole street being obliterated so that completely no trace, even of the houses, remains. As I walk across these sand dunes today, it's almost impossible to imagine the Bunmahan when it was thriving. Because slowly over the decades, the town, I suppose, returned to the quiet life it had once known before the mine blew up and drew so many people to this community. Now, while I suppose the story has come full circle, there is a few after stories or afterlives to the history of Bunmahan, and I want to finish up the show by telling you some of them. And I think to do that, I'm going to go back up to the pit head. That's where the shaft sinks down 850 metres into the ground. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of the after story and afterlives of the people who had worked here in the 19th century, where they went and what happened to them. 
To conclude the show, I've stopped at Tankardstown on the way home. Now, Tankardstown is where that 850-metre shaft reaches the surface, and it feels appropriate to finish the show here. I guess these ruins are one of the few vestiges of the amazing mining heritage of this community. While the mines did close in the 1870s, I guess that wasn't the end of the story. There was a couple of attempts, or attempts at attempts, you might say, to get the mines reopened. Maybe the most famous was in the early 20th century, when a somewhat iconic photograph that you see in lots of places around Bunmahan was taken. That saw a group of miners climb back into the mine and take a few shots of men purporting to be at work. And this was then printed on postcards, the idea being that if they had shots of people working in the mine, it might make people believe that it was feasible to reopen the mine. Now that whole attempt to get the mine reopened was stimulated by a rise in the price of copper, but ultimately it came to nothing. Even though copper was rising in price, the costs of reopening this mine would have been immense. It had been flooded out, so they would have had to pump out all the water and then obviously rebuild everything that would have been rotted by the decades it had spent underwater. But on top of that, and this, is, I suppose, is the most interesting postscript. All the miners were gone. Like 95% of people had left this community. They went all over the world. But I guess the most famous group of migrants from Bunmahan moved to a place called Buse in Montana. Now, if you haven't heard of Buse, it's actually considered, or certainly was at one point in its history, to be the most Irish place outside Ireland, because in the early 20th century, at least, 25% of the population there had come from Ireland. Butte is also famous as a copper mine, so it's not really any surprise that people from Bunmahan in the 1880s would move there because they had the skills to succeed in a copper mine and copper mining community. Now, I was curious, was there any memory and mention of Bunmahan in later decades and into the 20th century? These people had moved in the 1880s, and I was just wondering, had it been entirely forgotten? And in the course of my research for this podcast, I was looking in the US newspaper archive and I did find what I want to play out the show on, a newspaper article from the 1930s that talked about notable people in Butte that had come from Burnmahan and County Waterford. And it was clear that they obviously must have been very proud of where they'd come from and they talked about it a lot. So I'm going to play you an excerpt from this. Montana Standard. 27th September 1936. Old-time Butte miners from County Waterford, Ireland, commonly known as Big Wheelers, all of whom came to Butte following a mining shutdown in their native land, many of whom became well-known on Butte Hill in the days of Marcus Daly, included such names as Patrick Kane, who became a mine superintendent, his brother Jack Kane, father of the Butte doctors of that name, John J. O'Mara, also his cousin William O'Mara, William Ronan and others. Now, I guess the final part or postscript to the story of Bunmahan mining in the 19th century is actually Bunmahan today because, as I've said countless times now throughout the show, it's an idyllic place. But there's also a really great museum that's opened up in a disused church here, and that tells the story of Bunmahan mining. And you can come up actually to where I'm recording this right now at Tankardstown and see where that shaft came to the surface, get a sense of what this must have been like. And I would really recommend that if you're in County Waterford, there's also amazing views of the Copper Coast. That's what this area of Waterford is referred to as for obvious reasons, but there's really amazing views from here as well. Recording that show was pretty special. The views at Bunmahan are really spectacular. 
As I said in the recording, if you are in the area, check out the local museum and the ruins of the old mining operation at Tankardstown. Finally, if you are tempted by the sea at Bunmahan, and it is beautiful, there's a lovely swimming spot beside the lifeguard station, but do pay attention to warning signs. There can be dangerous rip currents. Now that's where I'm going to leave it for this week. Until next time, Sloan. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.